Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Sukkot sermon. I still remember years ago suddenly noticing the odd Hebrew construction that gets turned into a song, a song that Rabbi Elliot Dorf always leads us in if somebody else doesn't, we sang it today. What is that odd ach doing there, I asked myself. The question to that, the answer to that question is both complicated and about complexity. As I've, gotten more com- as I've gotten more comfortable with life's complexity, this turn of phrase has meant more and more to me. Since my family built its first sukkah back in the 1970s following guidelines in the Jewish catalog, the fall harvest festival has been my favorite among Jewish holidays. I'm grateful to have been able to have a home sukkah nearly every place I've lived, so it's been possible to experience solitary breakfasts or coupled breakfasts, as John and I had this morning, as well as festive lunches and intimate dinners or large dinners out the back door. That's a privilege that I know not everyone has, and it's really a special pleasure to have your home sukkah. It's taken me years to grasp how fast Sukkot comes after Yom Kippur, so that it's best to have the whole fall, fall holiday sequence well in mind before it begins. It's a kind of a roller coaster with no time to get off. And then I always suggest that to Jewish newcomers. Boys start thinking about Sukkot before it's Rosh Hashanah. In the midst of all of our planning and shopping and cooking, all the davening and dressing up or down, inviting people and being invited, it's easy to lose sight of the richly complicated joy that's at the heart of the holiday. Like other pilgrimage festivals, Sukkot has multiple layers, agricultural, historical, national, and spiritual, religious. Torah readings from Leviticus and Numbers a Haftor reading from Zechariah, and that we had today as well, and the Megillah edition of Kohelet, which this year will be on Shemini Atzeret, rather than it would have been yesterday, Sukkot's opening day on Shabbat. All of these readings, along with our prayers, our davening, Hallel, all these help us tap into Sukkot's layers of meaning, of and its layers of meaningful sweetness, as if maple syrup. And yet, ours is certainly not the only family that's tasted sorrow in recent years as well as much joy. And in our world today, where can we look? Where will our help come for all the challenges we face on a national level, on a local level, on a national level, on, uh, in Eretz Yisrael? in the world as a whole in the, on the planet. So how can we tap into Sukkot and into life's positive bounty when our lives and our families and our feelings are so multitudinous, so tumultuous? 
this year for the first time I've asked myself that question and looked to see what answers the tradition could help me come up with. The Hebrew verb, the Hebrew adverb, ach, has biblical occurrences that confirm and others that restrict. It can mean something like surely and also can mean something like in contrast to. The Biblical Dictionary by Brown, Driver, and Briggs notes that in some passages the affirmative and the restrictive senses agree equally with the context and authorities disagree and read the read the Hebrew differently. So it is that Ibn Ezra covers both bases when he writes, it's a fact. It is in fact a, com- a commandment to have joy on the Feast of Booths. That is, it is in fact a commandment to have joy on the Feast of Booths. But Ibn Ezra goes on to say, but some suggest that the verb is simply a future tense marking another result of the Lord's blessings, that you will have nothing but joy. It's just predictive, not commanding. For Rashi, too, quote, in a straightforward reading of the text, this is not a commandment, but a promise, which sounds more like a commandment to me. Oh, Sofarno enjoins, let no grief be mixed with your joy. So Sofarno is saying, have only joy, don't have any grief, that sounds like a commandment to me. So our sources, our old, our revered rabbinic sources are playing it both ways in a way like Ah plays it both ways. In a way, the ambivalent Janus-faced quality of Sukkot joy is built into its place in the holiday sequence. Coming so fast after Yom Kippur, which is after all the most serious day on our calendar, Sukkot marks a new beginning, starting things off with a clean slate. And yet, no sooner do we breathe in and out, no sooner do we move around, even if we manage to improve ourselves some during the High Holy Days, we're likely to fall into new, even if not into old, errors. And so it is that Sukkot joy must surmount obstacles. It must root itself deeply if it's to be full-hearted and real. As Yitz Greenberg puts this, the joy of Sukkot reflects maturity. It's the happiness of a free person who chooses to live this way, who prefers this mission to all other alternatives. There is an inner joy even in the struggle against obstacles, the joy of choice and of anticipation and of the goal on what he calls the Exodus journey. Now let's consider Maimonides' list of 613 mitzvot and look specifically at what Sefer HaHinuch, a 13th century Spanish work that's one of my favorite places to go when I'm giving a drash and in other situations. So what Sefer HaHinuch labels as being happy on the pilgrimage festivals, which comes as number 488. The anonymous author of Sefer HaHinuch elaborates in a way that I find most helpful, writing, at the root of the precept lies this reason, 
Man was constructed in such a manner that his nature needs to rejoice at times, just as he needs food under all circumstances and rest and sleep. God set certain times of the year as holy seasons for us to remember the miracles and kindnesses that God did for us. Then at those times, God commanded us to provide the physical self with the materials for rejoicing that it needs, food, drink, um, uh, lulav and etrog, uh, other things that we need in order to rejoice, to provide the physical self with the materials for rejoicing that it needs, and the result will be a great healing medicine for us. I think that's, that's quite Quite a phrase. Actually, I should have written down the Hebrew. The great healing medicine for us. Sukkot encourages and indeed requires us to play house like children, to rhythmically move our bodies in all directions, to take up various plants as if they were extensions of ourselves, to hang paper chains and other bits of decoration in our temporary quarters, and to create human circles that get everyone drawn in. It urges us to eat and drink with plenty and variety that our means allow. It urges us to sing and dance and celebrate not alone or even just in our family, but while welcoming guests, both symbolic and human, both alive and remembered. From the rich Jewish tradition that is our inheritance comes a promise. Sukkot will reciprocate all we do to make it ours. I think Shabbat, let me add, also comes with that promise that everything we put into the great Shabbat bank over the weeks, over the years, is there to nurture us when we really need it as we come to another Shabbat. So Sukkot definitely does that. It will reciprocate all we do to make make it ours. It will give us a joy that is more than transient, in a beautiful gloss to his Trumat Svi Pentateuch, Samson Raphael Hirsch, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, as it were the, the creator of modern orthodoxy, presents a vision of this kind of enduring joy. He writes, The behest, the samakta behageta, turns your rejoicing into a permanent trait of your personality. And the words ach sameach mean that this joyfulness in your character will persist even under circumstances that would otherwise cast a cloud over it. You will remain joyful nevertheless. That is still joyful. Rejoicing is its most sublime flower and fruit to ripen on the tree of life planted by the law of God. It will extend beyond the festive season accompanying us back to everyday life and remain with us through all its vicissitudes. Before concluding, I pause finally to ask myself, as you may have wondered, why we keep talking about, and I keep harping on now, about joy, 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 rather than happiness, since simcha also, maybe even mostly, gets translated with a variety of happy. If asked now if you are happy, 
if I ask myself, what reply would come? Many of us have our struggles. We have aspects of ourselves and our lives that make things difficult, sometimes near impossible for us to go forward physically, financially, emotionally, or spiritually. We try to meet our obligations and do the right thing. We take satisfaction where we can, and we endeavor to make things better for ourselves and those we care about. But it's rather like Tevye's wife, Goldie, being asked if she loves her husband. Do I love you? You ask yourself, am I really happy? It seems to me that Hirsch and much of the Jewish tradition doesn't care nearly as much about happiness as it does about joy. Happiness will, if we are fortunate, come to us at some point in our lives as an indirect benefit of our having been both lucky and worthy. Joy is something we can pursue directly by following Torah teachings as well as prudential wisdom. We need to make provision for joy, we need to plan toward it, we need to reach out for it, and we need to dig deeply into it. And then we need to hold on to it with all our might through the counterindications, through the suffering, through the losses, and even through the horror. And we need to help one another in our families and in our community to enable everyone to experience the joy that is a healing medicine for our fragmented selves and for our fragmented world. Let's try to do that all together in 5784. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.